Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm joined by one of the best hockey writers out there, Harmon Dial of The Athletic, who covers the Canucks and the NHL. Harm, thanks so much for for taking the time and doing this. Um, I really appreciate it. Uh, how's how's it been the the start of the year for you? A busy time, eh? Really exciting. I always love the fresh start of a new season. The best part about hockey is there's always something that no matter how long in training camp or the summer we try and predict what's going to happen with individual players or or what teams are going to make the playoffs. There's always so many unexpected surprises, so many random breakouts that nobody could have seen coming. Uh, you think back to last year, Seattle making the playoffs, for example, who would have thought that? Uh, and Or like Pittsburgh missing the playoffs for the first time and, and ending that uh, streak. There's just so many random surprises and uh, I'm just so jacked up. There's already been so many interesting storylines around the league. So uh, especially this year, I feel like in the East particularly, there's a bit of a changing of the guard. We've got a lot of young up and coming teams that are trying to take the next step, but also some aging teams that have had a lot of success in the 2010s that are still trying to cling on. And it's going to be so exciting to see how it all shakes out. No, definitely. And I kind of want to ask you a little bit about um, you had a really interesting story about how NHL players and and just how they go from being sent down to the AHL. Do you want to maybe talk about that? Because the quote that I keep, uh, you know, ringing in my ear is from Curtis Lazar, who said, you go from flying on private planes and eating steak pieces to to being on a bus and eating pizza. So just detail a little bit about that story, because I think it's really interesting to hear kind of the ins and outs of now NHLers, but just going uh, down to the minors. Yeah, it's the reason the story appealed to me is because, look, when some random fourth liner or seventh defenseman gets sent down or, or even a young top prospect who's not quite ready you just see it as a paper transaction right it's like oh like you you see you see the news on the score app or something and then you're like all right you move on with your day and you don't realize that on the other end of that it's a human being whose life is being transformed in so many different ways and it's not meant to be sort of like a oh let's feel bad for for these hockey players because at the end of the day, day they're still making a living and none of them do feel sorry for themselves when they're in that situation, but it is still so chaotic. I mean, first of all, you're often moving from where wherever you are, sometimes a glamorous NHL city to in the AHL, there are some not so glamorous cities and, and you may be moving halfway across uh, the continent or, or the country. And on top of that, you then got to deal with if you've got a family and kids, logistics for that, um, moving Plus, if you're on a two-way contract, especially if you're on an ELC, you may be going for making seven, seven, 75K, which is the league minimum right now, to 70K in the American League. What a massive difference that is in, in salary and in the type of paycheck you get every two weeks. So you have to deal with that. And then just the lifestyle difference. I mean, in the NHL, these guys are treated like kings with the travel, with all the extra resources and amenities you they have. I mean, they'll show up for a morning skate. And most teams, they'll have uh, chefs ready for, ready with breakfast for them. They're on the planes. They're eating steak, as, as Lazar mentioned. And then you go to the American League. It's not that you're treated poorly, but you're treated normally. Yeah. Uh, you're riding the bus. Travel's not so pleasant. Uh, a lot of times the meals aren't the best. And on top of that, there's also the confidence and the mental aspect of how tough a demotion can be and 
realizing how close you were to your dream and and only then to get sent down. I mean, I, I even think about look at what a player like Jansen Harkins has had to go through. Yeah. Um, with the Jets gets thrown on waivers, gets picked up by Pittsburgh. That's immediately like you go from the only organization that knew you uh, drafted, you developed you all the way moving to Pittsburgh, a new, co- uh, a new country. Then right away, it's like, you've got to perform. And in the first few games, doesn't perform. He's getting waived and he's, uh, I don't know if he got picked up or not, but uh, I don't think he did. And okay. if so, he, now he's having to go down to the American League. Think about how much of a whirlwind, whirlwind that experience is. And just working on that story was, for me, an opportunity to talk to players um, and get an insight. I mean, a lot of times you don't even have permanent sort of living arrangements. If you're a guy that bounces up and down, uh, I remember talking to Tyson Barry. He, he lived out of a hotel room uh for he said it felt like two years and you know ryan graves was talking about when he's in the american league um when you're living in these hotels you can't really cook so you're eating out every night and look that sounds great but at a certain point you become sick of eating out plus you're a professional athlete trying to get to the nhl it's probably not uh, optimal so so many different angles that uh, i thought were fun to explore no, it was, it was a great, great piece. And um, last time we talked, um, it was at the height of the the Pride po- protests in the NHL. And uh, just funny enough, today the NHL's reversed its um, uh, Pride tape ban, which was pretty ludicrous to begin with. What do you make of this whole soap opera that the NHL really seems to have put on themselves with um, obviously uh, Travis Dermott um, putting on a pride tape uh, a couple nights ago and just the whole fiasco of the NHL now going back and, and reversing the ban. Well, first of all, kudos to, to Dermott. And it's interesting because I remember doing a re- Edmonton radio hit right before the Oilers were going to be in town playing the Canucks. And uh, I remember Low Tide asked me if I thought anybody from the Canucks or Oilers would as an act of protest, continue wearing pride tape on their sticks. And I thought about it for a second. And my immediate sort of response was, look, under normal circumstances, if Travis Dermott was still on the team, I would have guessed him because I remembered having a conversation when he was first traded to the Leafs uh, about how he wears pride tape or pride tape on his stick every game. And I remember interviewing him and having a conversation about why it was so meaningful to him, especially because he, He'd uh, had a close family member who um, was, you know, hesitant to sort of come out and, and didn't always feel comfortable with that and, and how much it meant to them and everybody else uh, in the LGBTQ community when he came out and sort of wore that tape. So it's funny if, if I would have had a chance to bet on any player on the league to, <laughs> to be the one to stand up and do it, it, it would have been him. And honestly, considering the circumstances, this is a guy that missed almost all of last year. With uh with the concussion is fighting to keep his NHL dream alive is is on a two way contract. There's, there's no guarantees for him, uh, and to take that um sort of risk and putting himself out there defying the NHL's uh, rule at the time, uh that's uh really brave and I'm glad it's uh, led to the change uh, that we saw today. Uh, I want to go to um kind of some something that might be personal for you just because I don't, have you been to many drafts? Have you been to an NHL draft? Yeah. Game? Yeah. So how, how do you feel as the journalist that they might decentralize it and, and, but kind of bigger picture, what do you think it might mean for maybe the popularity of the draft of the game that if they were to go to uh, a decentralized draft? 
Yeah, so I have a few thoughts on this. I mean, obviously, from a personal standpoint as a journalist, it kind of sucks because you love going out to these cities, seeing everybody in the, in, in the industry. But I can understand why the league is looking at it. First of all, the teams would save a ton of money not having to fly everybody out. Plus, on top of that, the best point that somebody brought up, uh, Frank Cerebelli, on, on a different podcast uh, where I was co-hosting and, and he, he was coming on as a guest and he made the point that after speaking to executives, they made the point that on the draft floor, it's really difficult, or it's not that it's really difficult to execute trades, but GMs feel a little bit more hesitant about that because there's almost an element of, look, if you pick up the phone and you're talking to another GM or, or, or if you are on the draft floor having a conversation with, with another general manager, there are about... Uh, a hundred of us media members, guys like me uh, that are going to be like, oh, these guys are talking and it's going to be public information. And GMs are pretty, pretty secretive about that. They, I, I think the point Frank made was that it complicated the process of making trades. And I think that explains why uh, perhaps at last year's draft, for example, it was a bit quiet despite there being so many potential star players on, on the market. So I can understand from that standpoint. And the other issue, which I think doesn't necessarily relate with the draft itself, uh, but that has been brought up, is there's such a small gap these days between the end of the draft and free agency. Last year, there was only one day between the end of the draft and July 1st free agency. And in between that, you also have to make decisions on your RFAs and whether you're going to qualify them or not. Just way too much to do. But... I almost felt like, at least for that point, and even with a decentralized draft, the league calendar is just pushed too far back in terms of when the Stanley Cup is awarded, uh, how late the draft is being done. It, it's just too hectic of a news cycle uh, anyway. So I feel like even though the draft is being decentralized and it might solve some of those issues, uh, from a league interest standpoint, the the, the calendar, like, it, I, I think the, the NHL season should be starting early October rather than mid-October. And you you sort of start everything a couple weeks earlier, award the cup in early June rather than um, potentially the second or third week of, of June, which, by the way, when the weather turns nice, especially in Canada, like we get such limited good weather. Who wants to be in inside on a hot summer day watching hockey, right? So... Uh, those are my sort of initial thoughts on the decentralized draft. I I just I don't get with like the time difference, uh, like in terms of the spacing of the draft and free agency. Why the heck is free agency on July first, especially with Canada like being involved in this whole like Canadians in this? Like I, that's yeah. a question I don't really get. Um, I know probably part of the CBA and everything, but uh, yeah, um, I'll I'll go to a couple fun questions before I let you uh, you know get to your you know, somewhat of your bread and butter in the Vancouver Canucks. Um, the first one is just, you know, I know you're very, you know, analytical and, um, but I want to ask you in, in a cap world, what, what's your thoughts on goaltending in terms of, is it better to prioritize with your money if you're a GM, uh, a tandem or pay for elite goaltending? Or is it just, if you have Vasilevsky, you pay him and everyone else you don't like, what do you make of this kind of decision-making processes and, and where the league's heading in terms of more tandem goaltending. Yeah. Goaltending is really difficult to predict first and foremost. It tends to be so volatile 
And for me, look, if you end up in a scenario where you draft and develop a guy, an elite goaltender, that type of guy, sure, that's worth paying for, right? If you draft a Vasilevsky, if you draft a Sorokin or a Shosturkin, a Saros, a Demko, uh, fantastic. That's the best case scenario because at the end of the day, goaltending is so strange where it's both simultaneously the most important position, but it's also the most fickle position. Uh, And that's where you get these wild, um, wild swings. I mean, you look at a player like Jacob Markstrom. Uh, In 2022, he was a Vesna Trophy nominee. Last year, he was awful. And that's where I think as a general manager, unless you have one of those elite, elite guys, you have to be a little bit careful, I think, about investing uh, big contracts, particularly on the free agent market. Uh, I would much rather sort of go the tandem route. Uh, because you don't, in my opinion, want to end up with, like, just do you think Calgary wants Markstrom still in the books right now, even though he's bounced back a little bit, but aging goaltender in that scenario? Um, do you think Edmonton's happy with Jack Campbell right now? Wouldn't they love uh, a redo on that signing? So for me, uh, especially seeing how Vegas won its Stanley Cup um, mm-hmm. the year before, Kemper is a good goaltender, but because of his eye injury, it's pretty ordinary in the playoffs. Uh it's I feel like the the trend is sort of changing a little bit, but it's also unique where if we're gonna win with a tandem, you've got to be such an elite team. Like you look at why Vegas was able to make it work, it's because they were a top five defensive team in the NHL. They've got an elite, elite blue line. Uh, you look at why Colorado was able to make it work, it's because they were head and shoulders the best team in the NHL. So it's always preferable to have the best goaltender possible. Uh, but unless it's an elite guy, you've just got to be careful about putting all your eggs in one basket. And, and you are also noticing that goalies' workloads are changing a lot. And uh, the idea of the workhorse starter that's going to give you 60-plus games, uh, the risk that you run into is sure you may be great for, for 60 games in the regular season, but what about the deep playoff run if you're, if you're a contender? And, and that's where I think it's um, it's beneficial to – sort of hopefully have two guys that you can trust and uh, and and run with. Uh, but it in terms of how are you going to invest your cap dollars, and it becomes a very individual sort of unique case-by-case case, uh, scenario. Um, and it's it's one that I think le- that teams are still figuring out. Uh, how do you think the, you know, the cap supposedly going up to, you know, four or five million dollars next year, um, how how do you think that will affect not just goaltending but just the whole um, league in terms of player contracts? Like, do you think what are maybe the repercussions of of the cap finally going up for really the first time in you know half a decade? Well, the first thing I'm curious to see is exactly how much is it going to go up? Um, just because for starters, we've seen all that happen with Bali and what's been going on with regional yep. sports networks. Uh, some of the early attendance issues in uh, in Winnipeg and uh, and in Ottawa. So I'm curious how that's going to affect league revenue and whether the cap, we've got optimistic projections, will those last? Could those change a little bit? And um, could that sort of change the dynamic? Uh, I think first and foremost, we're setting ourselves up for such an interesting climate because we also saw so many free agents this past summer, the Matt Duchesne's, the Tyler Bertuzzi's, sort of sign these one-year deals that the free agent market is going to be really interesting because the one thing to keep in mind is 
it's not as if teams are, are are going to get a bit of relief and all of a sudden it's like a spending frenzy and you're, and you're going to see teams spending like drunken sailors again because what you've seen heading into the season is so many teams are so pressed up against the cap that they can't even field um, 23 man rosters. Uh, I mean, Edmonton, Vancouver opening night, um, both teams had to uh, play a skater short until they could, uh, at least in Vancouver's case, um, uh, use uh, emergency conditions to to call up Jack, Jack Stanika. So um, even you think about a team like Vancouver, it's like, okay, the cap's going up, great, but then but, you have other contract extensions coming up. Uh, you got to pay Elias Pedersen. Um, I'm sure Tyler Mars is coming off the books, but you got Philip Ronick to pay as well. And I think uh, the most interesting trend that I'm going to be looking for is uh, the top end guys, how much do their salaries start to um, inflate, especially because you look at the Rasmus Dellin contract, for example, I think that's going to age beautifully for Buffalo, but it's probably about a million higher than the most recent, recent market comparables. Um, and so that's, I think, the start of these comparables starting to trend higher. I mean, even Jake Sanderson in Ottawa, I think, um, we know how much of a stud defenseman he is. The day he signed that contract, I'm like, absolutely, he's going to be worth every penny of that contract. Great deal for the Senators. But if you were to look back at other sort of contracts for defensemen coming off of their ELCs, even a year out, uh, you're looking at it and going, yeah, that's a lot higher than typically defensemen are are, are paid right away. Um, so I think it's a sign of the changing market trends. And I mean, you look at how quickly even, let's say, Tim Stutzlow or Jack Hughes' contracts um, are looking. I mean, I remember when Jack Hughes signed that contract and it was uh, before it broken out and people were saying, oh my God, you're going to pay that much money to a guy that hasn't even proven he's a franchise player like that. And now it's already one of the best contracts in the NHL. And it just goes to show you, I think, that um, one of the biggest ramifications of the cap sort of going up is going to be star players um, demanding a little bit more and the ceiling rising. And that's where, again, I look at a player like Pedersen and I'm thinking, yeah, he's going to set a, a new standard for players. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really interesting. At the same time, I, I, I keep thinking about the middle class, right? Like, does the middle class shrink because guys like Pedersen – start making closer to Matthews money and, you know, Marner and Nylander, like they get the pay big payday, but you know, guys deeper in the lineup that might have used to get maybe three, 4 million might get only 2 million. And it's going to be interesting if we see that similar to maybe the NBA, although the NBA make players make way more money, but there's a huge difference between, you know, the stars and, and everyone else. Um, I, before I go to the Canucks, um, Harmon, if, if, you know, Gary Bettman came to you and said, I'm resigning, Harmon, you're now emperor and chief of the uh, NHL, you are the commissioner, what rule would you, you change? What would your, your first degree, decree sorry, be? Oh, man, that's a good question. I had to think about that. There's so many different angles you could go. I think uh, the biggest issue I'd want to tackle, and not that it's an issue, but I, I find sometimes with the NHL regular season, with it being 82 games, I like to find ways to sort of add stakes to it or make it more interesting, especially down the stretch. Because sometimes what happens is if I don't think it'll be a problem this year, but nor was it an issue last year. But in other previous years, what you'll sometimes happen is by the all-star break, the playoff teams are are pretty much already set. 
it's maybe one race that you're watching. And uh, especially in a divisional format, the seeding doesn't really matter in conferences. And it just sort of feels like the last couple months of the season, especially after after the um, trade deadline, are are, are just sort of uh, a bit dull. There's not a lot of exciting games. And, um, you know, I think there are a couple ways to sort of think about it. Uh, I... I don't mind the idea of uh, of adding a play-in tournament. I know that's sort of unpopular, uh, but I, I feel like it just sort of makes seeding matter more because now there's not just a race to get into the playoffs, but you got to make the top six to guarantee that you don't have to play those um, sort of wild card games. Either that, or I think the the one that I think might be interesting, um, even from a game theory perspective, would be the the gold plan um, on uh, on tanking. Uh, I'm probably going to butcher my explanation for it, but it's the idea that uh, to sort of determine the draft order, basically what happens is you you determine the order one through, you know, whatever, um, 15, based off of uh, who, which eliminated teams rack up the most points uh, once they're elim eliminated. And oh, the yes, theory yes. there is that if you're terrible, if you're the San Jose Sharks potentially of this year, you're going to get eliminated from the playoffs really quickly. But what that's going to do is now all of a sudden um, you've got a long range to bank points. Yeah. Whereas a team that's eliminated on the last day of the regular season, if you're, let's yeah. say, you know, Vegas of two years ago and you're eliminated in the last week, you're not going to bank any points. So you're not going to end up getting lucky and shooting into the top 10. Uh, but it sort of adds stakes. And now the San Jose Sharks, like, can you imagine the Connor Bedard race last year? Oh my God. What they would do to spice up the regular season? Um, the only thing I'd worry then is, okay, could the trade deadline be too boring? Yeah. Because was... now sellers are hold on, holding on to their guys. But uh, like, whatever it is, I think my biggest, I don't, th I don't think I, I've settled on a rule change specifically, but the biggest sort of area that I'd love to address is, finding ways to make the second half of the regular season more interesting beyond the ordinary uh, playoff races. I, I, you know, uh, I don't know if you're an NBA guy, but obviously I am, I, I covered the uh, Canada, but I will say they've adopted the play in tournament and it's completely changed how teams look at the regular season. Um, you know, it's the way it works is basically the seventh through eight, uh, seventh through 10th seeds, um, you know, have to play in play in games and then one through six get automatic spots. And, and trust me, you want to be six compared to seven. And, uh, you know, if you get in at 10 and you, you never know, like kind of like when there was that, uh, what was it called? The, 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 during the bubble, what were those games called? Those series, uh, were they seeding series or I forget, but the plan or wild card wild card the ones where it was like the Habs beat the Penguins as like the 12 seed versus I think the five anyways like that added some drama and you're not out of it and the game's down the stretch so um I like the the gold yeah. theory so the other thing I'd add to the wild card thing is because typically like my initial thought was like if you asked me six like six to eight months ago I would have been like oh no way I, I hate it why are you expanding the playoff field makes it easier to get into the playoffs but uh the the point that somebody made to me that really drove it home where I was like, okay, they're like, all right, you, you don't want to be at the whims of a, of a short, short wild card sort of um, race and, and sort of getting knocked out in these wild card games. Fine. Be good enough to slot on the top six. Exactly. Like, yeah. Why are you, why are you on the margins? Why are you on the fringes? 
And I was like, you know what? That's a fair point. If you're good enough, just get into the top six and you don't have to worry about the extra wildcard shenanigans. And I'm like, all right, fair enough. I think uh, to spice up the regular season, it's um, it's enough for me. Well, uh, you know, uh, Commissioner Harmon's on it. We're, you know, we'll, we'll call the league office and we'll, we'll get it done for, for next year. But uh, um, I want to go to the Canucks. Uh, just, you know, f- you know, five games in, uh, obviously they're playing tonight, but just um, in general, how would you evaluate the Canucks so far this season who, you know, they've been plagued by slow starts and, um, you know, their record would indicate otherwise. I would say it's a, you know, a perfect, um, you know, start to the season, but at least, uh, you know, not terrible like past years. How would you just evaluate um, their start to the season so far, Harm? Yeah, mostly positive. I mean, right off the bat, Look at Vancouver, we're used to these nightmare, disastrous players only meeting after three games type. Uh, it's an oil look, <laughs> especially. I mean, like looking at the schedule coming, uh, to start the year, you have Edmonton back to back, and you're thinking, Oh my god, that's a cup contender, and you got Tampa and, and Florida and uh, Philly early, which on paper they're not the best team, but you always know. I was in Philly last year watching. And the type of start that they had, like towards teams come out of the gate, gates roaring. It's a second half when you want to play them when they're sort of bogged down, they're tired. And you sort of looked at that schedule, especially with how many elite power plays you're you're facing in those uh, first five games. And you're thinking, man, this is going to be a really difficult opening road trip. And to to start off three and two, I mean, any Canucks fan would have uh, would have taken that uh, before the year started. I think when you look at some of the individual trends uh, and storylines in terms of positives, you start with goaltending, seeing Demko bounce back to Smith's been uh, fantastic in the couple starts that he's had, which for this team to make the playoffs, they're going to need uh, well above average goaltending. And they've gotten that to this point, which uh, is confidence is inspiring. Uh, the top players have been outstanding. I mean, Elias Patterson, 10 points through five games, outstanding two-way play. Quinn Hughes single-handedly uh, taking over that uh, last game against the Panthers. JT Miller unlocking the best version of himself at center, battling hard. Not just the points, but the effectiveness with which he's driven 5-on-5 five five play. That's been Vancouver's best line at 5-on-5, uh, at five five, dragging the team into the fight. Uh, so the top guys are, are going. The power play hasn't skipped a beat. It's looking as dangerous as... It's ever been lots of changes strategically in terms of how they attack, uh, more movement-focused power play, and it's so unpredictable. It's not just that they're scoring, but if you're a team pre-scouting them, there's oh. not one play that they're spamming that you're – that hmm. it's like an EA NHL thing where it's like, oh, they're spamming this one thing. We just got to fix, I, fix I always, this thing. I always think about spamming is just every time the Capitals go on a power play and you just your eyes just look at Ovechkin every single exactly. Time. And you're thinking, just don't give them the puck and you're okay. But uh, the Canucks definitely are not like that. Yeah, so that's been fantastic. I think the penalty kill has held up relatively well. In terms of things that uh, give me pause for cons- uh, reason for pause, um, have some concerns so far. Uh, right off the bat, the state of the blue line, I think, is still pretty dodgy, especially Tyler Myers being in the top four, I think, heading into the season. Uh, a lot of us thought that they'd have three lefties in the top four, that one of Ian Cole or Carson Soucy would move over to the right side, but the coaching staff has a clear preference for uh, lefty-righty combos, and that means Myers in the top four again. And it has uh, 
looked really, really rough so far. Uh, on top of that, I think the teams had long stretches where, they're, where they've been outplayed territorially. Uh, it just seems like they haven't found their foundation at uh, at five on five yet. They're still allowing a, a lot defensively. It's it's not so much an effort or a competitiveness issue in my mind outside of the Philadelphia game. Uh, they just aren't cohesive breaking the puck out. Uh, they have long stretches where they aren't able, they're just not fast enough to win loose pucks or, or heavy enough uh, to win uh, battles on the fourth check. And the result of that is they've spent a lot of time defending. I think um, when you look at the five games, if you ignore the results, you would look at the first game against Edmonton where they thumped them and go, all right, like on form, they played fantastic. And um, you probably like their game against the Panthers too, but the middle three, even though they snuck out a win against um, Edmonton on, uh, on during the second game, that was, I think, a, a pretty lucky combination of luck and, and guts. And so they've been outplayed, I think, pretty significantly in three or five games. So so that's something to, to keep an eye on. Um, their underlying numbers, obviously, only five games sort yeah. of reflects that. Uh, so I think those would be the pros and cons of some of the big storylines so far uh, through five games for the Canucks. What I know you wrote about, and I think we talked about it last time you were on about just like what Rick Tockett has brought to this team in terms of structure, different from uh, Goudreau, but um, or Boudreau, Goudreau. Why did I say Goudreau? Uh, Boudreau. But um, what have you seen in maybe the details um, just about their defense? And he basically said something like, you know, half the team is getting the you know the defensive concepts so far. Just. Talk about what he's brought to this team and maybe what you've seen tactically in, in, in the Canucks, maybe what's different from years prior. Yeah, you can see that Tockett is definitely really hard on these guys. I think it's it's not just that, hey, this is the system, this is the structure. Uh, he is being pretty ruthless about pushing this group hard to stick to it, to buy in. Uh, I mean, they got bag skated after the second game at Edmonton. And this is a team that they beat the beat arguably one of the best teams in the league twice in a row. Um, the first game just blew them out. And then the second game, I think the reason he bag skated them is because even though they won, uh, they got outplayed a lot. And that just goes to show you, I mean, getting bag skated when you're 2-0, and <laughs> yeah. he's holding you to really high standards. And I mean, even after the Philly game, um, pretty scathing comments, um, almost sort of talking about sort of almost referring to complacency, sort of saying, who are we to think we're anybody? And yeah. so he's gone after these guys hard. And, and you can tell, even though this seems three and two, that um, he's looking at the overall form and, and how deeply they've been outplayed and sort of looking at it as like, look, we've been bailed out by goaltending. We've been bailed out by our top stars sort of carrying us a little bit we need other guys to sort of step up and I think that's a fair assessment, but we'll see how that actually translates because uh, uh, it's been hit and miss. Like some games you look at them and you're like, there's more professionalism here. There's more maturity. They're managing the puck better. They're not turning it as often on offensive zone turnovers, which are the devastating mistakes that lead to odd man rushes against. Uh, They're not shooting themselves in the foot as much when they when, when the other team picks up momentum, um, they might make a mistake, but as Tockett says, they're not duplicating their mistakes. But then other times you see some of those old habits start to 
uh, creep in uh, a little bit. And sometimes it's not even so much an effort or competitiveness thing, right? Like managing that and keeping it up is going to be a standpoint. The other issue that he's, you know, talking going to have to grapple with is um, straight up personnel, right? To execute his fast north-south style, you need um, you need forwards that are really quick, uh, that can outskate teams, and that are bigger and stronger. And the Canucks don't have a lot of those types of personnel, uh, which means that no matter how hard you try, sometimes you're just not going to be able to execute. Uh, mm-hmm. Same thing defensively. You can have the right structure and systems in place, but sometimes your defenseman, sometimes Tyler Myers in the in the top four is just going to give it away. Yeah. Um, and that's not an effort thing. That's just you don't have sometimes the right player. So I think those are some of the uh, issues that Tonkin is going to have to work through. And I think the biggest sort of thing to watch for right now is how consistently, like outside of the results, how consistently can the group execute the way he wants the team to play rather than having wins where it's individuals mm-hmm. single-handedly guiding them to wins. No, definitely. Um, I, I want to ask about Quinn Hughes because he obviously was named captain this year. Uh, was he the right choice in your mind? And, and what do you make of now the I believe he's the youngest captain in the NHL. Yeah, is he really the youngest captain in the NHL? Yeah, um, I, I Googled it. Is he 24? Yeah, because I I, I I wrote a piece on Brady Kachuk and Kachuk is like a month wow. older than him. And Wow, I'm surprised. Yeah, That's no, surprised. I was very surprised. Maybe off. Maybe, maybe, maybe Nico Heischer was at the same draft. I think it was. Anyways, um, because yeah. I think Heischer might be oh, oh, 17, oh, I, so he's I younger. Will this as as or, sorry, he's older. I mean, yeah. yeah, I think you might be right. But wow, I I hadn't thought of so used to seeing like uh, Bedard type set after. I mean, I know he's not captain, but it's like one or two years after. Immediately, here's the C. Uh yeah. I mean, I think he was a sensible choice for captain. Uh, he's grown so much in confidence. I've had a chance to cover him since his first um, first uh, days entering the NHL. And I've just grown so much mentally in terms of his confidence, how he carries himself, uh, how much he speaks out, uh, the type mm-hmm. of standard that he holds himself to, how much he's how much he pushes himself, just the burning desire to uh, like he's sick of losing. Yeah. At, at this point, he is so sick of that. And he's um he's at the point now where just with the entire group, he's not going to put up with nonsense. And I think that's the type of leader you need considering the Canucks uh, circumstance. He's, uh, he's never, he's never going to be the most vocal guy, but again, feels more confident doing that. And I mean, his play has been uh, sensational. Uh, where, where would night you, in, night out. Where would you rank him in, in, in terms of one of the best defensemen in the league? Like, is he now in your mind, like a perennial Norris trophy candidate? Yeah. Hands down for me, top 10, defense, top 10 defensemen in the league, like not even a question uh, for me. It's a question. It's more a debate of, is he knocking down on uh, being a top five defenseman? And, and that's where the debate, in my opinion, should start with Quinn Hughes uh, because it's just a one man sort of machine out there, not only offensively, but the misconception that I think a lot of people have is undersized guy doesn't defend well, but man, his defensive play has grown so much the last couple of, um, of years for a guy who makes such sensational plays, rarely turns it over, rarely has defensive breakdowns where it's like, Oh, why isn't he boxing a guy out here? 
Um, why did he get burned off the rush here? You rarely see those types of mistakes with him. Uh, and uh, on top of that, the thing to always keep in mind is playing in Vancouver. He's had to drag such a such a, a blue line that outside of him, let's call it how it is, has for the most part been disastrous. And that type of context and environment um, matters. You think about uh, like how much players' games improve when they move to a more favorable environment. I mean, who was talking about Hampus Lindholm when he was in Anna? Honestly, like we were talking about Hampus Lindholm. He was on the radar as a stud defenseman when the Ducks were good. And then when they became bad, nobody talked about him because people were like, oh, he fell off. Goes to Boston, much more favorable environment. Uh, back in the Norris conversation last year, right? Mm-hmm. And Hughes has not only had to deal with that, but up until this season, um, he's mostly had to deal with... Um, with pretty subpar partners outside of his rookie year with Tanev. And so um, he's a guy that for those reasons, I think for in, in the league wide discussion goes underrated when it comes to the discussion of um, the elite best defenseman in the NHL. Um, I want to go to one elite Canuck to another and Elias Pedersen just, um, you know, he's, he's going into a contract year. He's I think one year away from, from free agency. Um, just, what do you, what do you make of his future with the Canucks? Um, there's been, you know, Friedman has reported some, you know, murky comments from how the Canucks are, I think, unsure on Pedersen. I don't know why uh, he's been amazing uh, for so long, but just what do you make of, of maybe Pedersen's future with the Canucks? Yeah. And, and I think Friedman did sort of clarify some of those comments and, and sort of said that he sort of, I think, misrepresented it the first time he spoke. With Pedersen, I mean, it really comes down to this. He's at the point now where I believe he's entering his sixth NHL season, this one right now. He's given so much of his prime years already up to this franchise. He's at the point now where he wants to win. He's desperate, and the Canucks just need to sort of get their crap together. (laughs) <laughs> it's uh, it's really that simple. That I think is going to be the biggest key, uh, more than money, more than you know, no move clauses, and how long is the deal going to be? What type of cap it is it going to be for? Obviously, those things matter, but the biggest priority I think for Pedersen is going to be: Do I feel comfortable committing uh, the rest of my prime potentially here? And that's where the Canucks. There's a lot of stakes on them to be successful this year. That's what I'm eyeing more than anything in terms of the future between him and the organization is, look, we know Patterson's a stud player. I'm not worried about his individual performance. He's going to keep doing his thing. It's about can the team really dial it in and prove to Patterson that this is a market you can win in. How close do you think the Canucks are to, you know, like they could easily make the playoffs, but just to be a real contender because they do have the framework of every cup team it seems they have the star defenseman the star forward and they have star forwards and and a star goalie like how close are they to becoming that team uh, in your mind harm yeah that's a tricky question because i can see this team sort of getting it together to the point where they can be a team that makes the playoffs i think the challenge to becoming an actual cup contender is there's a lot of work to be done uh, because yeah, they have the, the, the skeleton, 
the base few pieces, but it takes more a lot, a lot more than a few stars to to put together a contending team. The thing to keep in mind is I think a lot of people from outside Vancouver look at them and they go, oh, well, why have they been so bad? They got the great goaltender. They got the great defenseman. They got the star centerman. And and there's always this conversation of, okay, like they'll, they'll figure it out, right? They'll, they'll get it together. And the thing to realize is, well, they haven't. Like they've had these star pieces. Yeah. And they haven't. So I think that right off the bat, like you can say we've got this guy, we've got this guy, we've got this guy. But if you are constantly in a state of turmoil, if you can't even get to the playoffs, at the end of the day, there's still a mountain of a gap uh, between where you are today and where you need to be to be a legit Stanley Cup uh, uh, contender. So right off the bat, like it's we're there's steps to this, right? We're, we're still on the, can they make the playoffs? And then it's the, can they be a consistent playoff team? Uh, can they be that caliber of uh, of a roster? And then it's the cup uh, contenders. So there's a lot that needs to get done. And especially in the blue line, like it's say. still such uh, a work in, in progress. We'll see what type of impact Rona can have. I mean, I'm confident he'll be a good piece, but two good defensemen don't make up uh, a cup caliber blue line. I mean, just so far away from uh, what you need. And the issue that the Canucks run into is they've got cap problems. I mean, even when Myers comes off the books, uh, Pedersen's going to cost, even if you keep him, which you, you obviously want to, and you'll be thrilled and over the moon if you get him long-term, he's going to cost an arm and a leg. And that's a problem because if you had been able to re-sign him long-term, yeah. um, last time, instead of bridging him, you would have saved so much. And a lot of that money can go towards investing on the back end. And, uh, you're also in a situation like trying to upgrade, let's say the blue line. You can't just trade your first and second round pick every year. No. Um, if you're if you're shoring up your blue line via trade and in free agency, you're always going to overpay. You're you're either going to roll the dice and end up with Nate Schmidt and all of Reckman Larson type uh, gambles that you may end up regretting, or, or Myers type uh, free agent contract. Um, and this is where it. It's massive for them over the next couple of years. Like they need Tom Willander to about to develop into a stud. Um, they need more prospects to sort of hit because you look at this core, and you know after this season, once Patterson is paid, how many value contracts do you have? That's what you need to to be a cup winning team. You look at Vegas's roster; they've got value contracts up and down. A guy like Chandler Stevenson at two two point six five. Um, putting up 65 points for you. Marsha so at 5 million winning at Conn Smythe. You look at their blue line, Shea Theodore making, what, 5.25. Bryn McNabb makes in around $3 million range. White Cloud and Haig make nothing. Uh, Martinez is on a reasonable ticket. Uh, you just go up and down that roster, so many favorable sort of contracts. That's why you win. You look at why Colorado won. They had Nate McKinnon making... Less than seven million, I think. They had uh, Valerie Nichushkin in the two five range, two point five million range. Uh, they had Bowen Byram playing, <laughs> yeah, on his ELC, right? So the question for Vancouver is going to be how are you going to create those uh, favorable contracts, especially because in two years you've got Kuzmenko coming up, and you know if he continues producing at a high clip, he's going to need a new deal. Demko in three years, he's going to need a new, need a new deal. So I think. The biggest challenge this group is going to find is, like you could say, uh, you could say right now, like, all right, based off what I said, okay, you've got Kuzmenko and, and Demko, like yeah. this is your window now, right? 
But then you look at your pieces that you need and you're like, well, Lander isn't going to be ready for two or three years. And that's where you end up in that awkward in-between stage. And that's what the Canucks are going to have to solve. Uh, Harm, uh, just, you know, before I let you go. Um, so will the Canucks make the playoffs? If you, you know, you had to put your house on it or your truck or whatever the case may be. Uh, well, are the Canucks going to make the playoffs this year in your mind? Yeah, to me, it's going to come down right to the wire. It's, it's going to be a 50 50. Um, I've sort of felt that they'd be a bubble team in, in, sort of in or out in that sort of conversation um, heading into the year. I think the way things have trended so far through training camp, preseason, start of the regular season, nothing's changed on that front. That's where I sort of um, sit. I think anybody who's confidently telling you an answer is uh, full of crap, honestly. Yeah. Uh, but if I had if I had to guess one way or another, because I can't just give you the oh, it's gonna yeah, be fifty yeah, fifty. Uh, uh, I think for me, even though the team started really well, and this team started better than expected, even in terms of what I would have been hoping. I still look at this team and I think they're a little bit too top heavy. And I look at the way that they've won and they've been really over-reliant on goaltending. And you look at how the team's controlled play so far. Again, if you ignore, I tend to be a process over results type of guy. I, I try and look at what's the quality of, of how the team's playing and um, can it last rather than dying by the the knife's edge of, of wins and losses. And, and to me, they've been pretty handily outplayed in three of those five games. Um, they're they're injury prone, in my opinion, in the sense that if one of your top guys goes down, yeah, man, you're you're in a whole world of, of trouble more so than other teams that are a little bit more balanced. Uh, and so while I do see reasons for optimism in in the goaltending, in the special teams, in the tops, in the top guys, uh it's a lot to, to bank on. And if I had to guess, I would guess no right now. But on the other hand, it's also just like, I'm to- I'm honestly torn right now because yeah. on the other hand, I'm also seeing like Calgary is worse than I thought so far. Mm-hmm. So Seattle, like, that, like teams in that division. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Seattle, I thought would be out of it to be honest. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, them <clears> being <throat> even worse, Calgary is the big one. And even Winnipeg starting worse than I anticipated. Like, I say I'm leaning slightly towards no right now, but then just right now I'm talking myself into yeah, you know, coin and you, you could say, well, they've had tough teams they played against, and you know, like even though exactly like Philly, but you know, yeah, they, there's honestly so many arguments for and against. If I had to, if I had to lean one, I'd say no, but I'm I'm honestly not 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 sort of confident in that pick at all. I'm legitimately torn. Well, I'm not going to aggregate you, so don't don't worry, Harm. Uh, I want to uh, ask you, you know, what because I, I was I, I was actually sifting through the athletic to see if you had a prediction. I couldn't find one for the Stanley Cup. So on the kind of prediction lane, and you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm only going to come back to you in in June if if you get it right. But um, <laughs> what's your Stanley Cup prediction uh, if you know today in October? Yeah, really good question. For me right now, see, it's tough because I don't think one team has necessarily separated itself from the pack. Uh, obviously, 
a lot of people are going to pick sort of trend towards Vegas. I mean, you look at, you know, cup, uh, cup winning team that's undefeated through six. Uh, for me, I lean towards like if Colorado somehow gets Gabe Landeskog back ready in time for the playoffs, that's a wagon. That to me <laughs> is, is, is would be the best team on paper. So right now I'm looking at Colorado as, as being the best team on paper. Uh, that, that's, um, just such a, a team that's so balanced and I think they're less injury prone than last year. Last year, they were just absolutely ravaged. I like their depth better um, this year, especially adding, a, a, you know, pieces like Ross Colton. And and so I think uh, it's the abs for me. Um, do, you, do you have a team out of the East to, that they beat in the final? I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh, East is so wide open, isn't it? it uh, is. For me, yeah. I I would have said Carolina. Going into the season, I know they've started uh, pretty, pretty uncharacteristically. You look at you know them having the yes. best back end um, in the league on paper, but them sort of leaking tons of goals against. But they'll figure it out. It's the early going, and so I think I'm going to stick with uh, with Carolina. I just think their their blue line is is elite, and people might look at their goaltending and, and sort of be like, well do you really you know feel confident in that and and my answer to that would be look at how vegas just won and in, in, in carolina is one of those rare like few teams that can replicate uh, that success and how well they typically defend rob brindamore and the other sort of concern with them sometimes can be do they have enough star power at the top of the lineup and, and that's a valid question mark but i also look at vegas and i mean they scored a lot as a team but what are their leading? I don't think they had a single player who's point per game in the regular season. And I mean, Jack Eichel was in a stud, but I think uh, Aho can play at that level. Uh, absolutely. I, I think he can step up to, to the occasion. So um, for me, Carolina is still my favorite team in the East on paper. Um, so I'll, I'll leave with some, you know, you know, some controversy. Who's, who is the best team in Canada and who will like go the farthest in the playoffs out of the Canadian teams? Uh, it's still Edmonton for me. Okay. I uh, I haven't changed uh, on that. It's here's the thing. Every year, like they've had a disaster start. Let's not sugarcoat it. No, no. But every year you'll have at least two or three teams that are contenders on paper that start poorly. I think two years ago Colorado had a slow start. Yeah. Um. And what ha- they like won the Stanley Cup. At the end of the day, it's just the first month of the regular season. It's better to sort of iron out those kinks early. And a-, a team going through adversity in the early going, it's not the worst thing in the world because it, like, they're forced to not be complacent. When I think a team doesn't have enough challenges in the regular season, like they just coasted like Boston did last year, um, or Tampa in their in the year they lost to Columbus, how ridiculously dominant were they in their regular season? They can just operate in cruise control. What happens is it can be hard to turn from a regular season intensity to a playoff intensity. And so that's why I think adversity can be good, especially if you then catch fire in the second half and you're playing your best hockey. Um, So to me, look, Edmonton's got holes. I don't love their goaltending situation. That's a concern for me. Um, I worry a little bit about, is Evander Kane slowing down? I worry a little bit about, do they have enough scoring in the bottom six? Um, the back end is still working through issues, although I'm confident that once Ekholm is is fully feeling like himself again, um, that he and Bouchard will find their chemistry again. 
Um, I think Nurse and, and Bouchard have a lot more to give than they've shown so far. Uh, so look, it, it's they're a flawed team, but in my opinion, all the teams in Canada are flawed. Like I don't feel that confident in, in Toronto either. I mm-hmm. I, I don't like their blue line. I I'm still up and down about their goaltending, and and so I also think the the we'll we'll see in terms of um, the path to sort of the the cup where um like with Toronto like Toronto may ha- may end up with an easier path um to make it deep than than it seemed like Edmonton might be considering how how deep the Pacific is uh but also like another point obviously we've seen that you know Dummy's picked it up lately but Leafs' big additions have had slow starts and um and so they've been a little bit reliant on Matthews to to pick up some of their wins so Honestly, I, I don't love any of the Canadian teams right now in terms of actually a cop co- favorite. Where do you see the sense? This is someone in Vancouver, like I'm here all the time covering the team, but like where do you see the sense? I'm just kind of curious. I love them as an up and coming team. I think um uh I like them more than Buffalo heading into the season in terms of making Did the you? playoffs. I know yeah, I, I just thought the Buffalo hype hype train What's got out of control a little <laughs> bit. Like, don't get me wrong, I viewed Buffalo and sort of Ottawa, Pittsburgh and the Islanders in that same sort of tiers. And like, they're on the bubble They're We'll see if they're going to be in or out. And now you can obviously add like Florida and Tampa to those mix of bubble teams in the East as well. Um, and now Detroit, considering how hot they've been. Yeah. Uh, but I, I still gave sort of Ottawa the edge in my opinion, just because I felt a little bit better about the goaltending situation. I know it, it's been awful in the past. And I know Corpusalo hasn't done a lot to inspire confidence, but okay. with Forsberg coming back, I felt with him and Corpusalo and Corpusalo playing well last year, I liked it better on paper than Levi and um, Uka Pekalukanen and Eric Comrie because I just sort of thought like, look, I'm sure Levi uh, Levi's going to be a stud, but man, the jump from college to the NHL is a tough one. And um, also just as a team, like, I look at Buffalo and, and Ottawa's blue lines as being pretty similar. And maybe I'm wrong. I think with, with Sanderson really popping off more so than power, I think I may have even underrated Ottawa's blue line relative to Buffalo. But the edge that I see is Buffalo's forwards are bad defensively in a way that I think like the Senators have a speed, have that same speed component. They have a lot of skill, uh, but they also have, like I think they're more, they're a more mature two way team. Like just watching the Sabers, they've still got a lot to fix in terms of their structure and, and defensive habits. And obviously that's still going to be a work in progress for Ottawa too. But feel a little bit more confident in uh, in them figuring out. Especially like I think last year one of the issues for Ottawa, not one of the primary issues, but one of the things that you would have looked at heading into this season is okay, this area needs to step up for them to make the playoffs. Um, would have been their bottom six. It just felt yeah. like they didn't get enough scoring there. And now you're in a situation where, where Joseph has bounced back. Um, Ridley Gregg. I, I, Ridley Gregg is one <laughs> of my favorite players to watch in the NHL. Seriously, the, the, just just throwback old school player with his physicality, how he gets under guys' skin. Um, legit, like honestly, might be my favorite player outside of Vancouver right now. Uh, to watch just in terms of like I like those um, you know disturber get under guys' skins right now and obviously it's the novelty of like he's a new player and mm-hmm. 
we haven't seen a lot of him yet. So definitely shiny new toy factor. That makes it exciting for me. But right now, like outside of obviously the star names, like the Jack Hughes types, um, like he's legit one of my favorite players to watch in the league right now. No, he's 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 not he's not like Brad Marchand, but he has that little like has skill, pugnacity, as as someone used to say, and, and just I, I I love watching him. Uh, I was watching him on the weekend, had a really nice goal, so I I definitely am all in on. I'm buying all of uh, Ridley Gregg's stock uh, alongside you, Harm. Uh, I just want to give you the floor. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time and doing this. Is there anything you want to plug at the Athletic or anywhere else, uh, Sportsnet, other stuff? Yeah, I mean, I'm just continuing to obviously do not only Canucks, but uh, national stuff for um, for the athletics. So I'm pumped about that. I uh, for this, you know, later this week, we'll have a have a deep dive on some of my favorite sort of under the radar rookies, which is why I like I've been watching so much with the Greg tape because I'm like, I need like this guy is at the top of my list to <laughs> shout out that the rest of the league needs to know. And um, it's it's going to be like a lot of for a lot of these top 10 guys. Um, also breaking down a lot of tape, uh, video, which I think is interesting because, you know, uh, you're, you know, most, most people, most hockey fans are a fan of like one team or like maybe two teams. So they don't get, get to see a lot of other teams. So I think it's, you know, it's cool. And I'm excited to just, you know, work on a piece like that for later this week to where fans from out of market can see like, okay. Um, you know, a guy like, uh, Matt, uh, Patra in, in Boston. Right. All the talk about Bergeron, Krejci, what are they going to do at center? And they're rolling. And obviously they've had a soft schedule so far, but it's like this random 19 year old kid is coming out of nowhere and looking like a top six center. Like, is he the real deal or not? Is he going to get sent down uh, to junior? And, um, you know, I've got a lot of tape to show people and, um, you know, that's the type of stuff I love to do. So just excited for that. Awesome. I'm I'm excited to, to read it. I always love, uh, you know, kind of going in the weeds and, and reading your stuff. So I really appreciate it, Harm. And, uh, have a, a great rest of the year and um, hopefully for your sake, Colorado plays uh, Carolina and uh, you know, you know, you get the, the right prediction. So I'll definitely get back to you on that when uh, you get it right. Um, I'm sure you will. So uh, we'll again. hope, but I'm really not sure. I'm, I'm probably <laughs> going to get it wrong. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. But uh, I do appreciate your time harm. Uh, you're, you know, you're a busy man. So uh, thanks again for doing this and uh, I really appreciate it. Cheers.